0: Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson.
1: And I'm Gary Anderson.
0: And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Now, today's podcast features an analysis of Episode 5 of Season 2 entitled Saints of Imperfection. We'll then provide short takes on some observations we had while watching the show.
1: And finally, we'll close the episode with a report on other Star Trek-related news. So, as always, let's start with the episode synopsis. Now, our review contains a number of spoilers, so you may want to view the episode first if you haven't already done so.
0: So here's the synopsis. Unlike the preceding episodes... Saints of Imperfection focuses on one major plot line, that is, the rescue of Tilly from the mycelial network after her abduction by May of the Jossip species. Few on the discovery believe Tilly is still alive, with the exception of Stamets, that is. He postulates that the cocoon cocoon May left behind may have served as a type of transporter device to take Tilly to her home.
1: Now, though the plan risked the entire crew of the ship, Pike agrees systemic scheme, um, characterizing it as both bold and insane. The plan would use the spore drive to partially enter the mycelial network by wedging the discovery halfway in, like a doorstop. Once in, Stamets and Burnham have one hour to rescue Tilly before the Joseph would begin to eat through the hull, breaking down the matter and repurposing it.
0: Now, Section 31, the Federation's secretive Black Ops Agency, brings another complication to the story. Discovery intercepts Spock's shuttle However, when they capture and bring it aboard, they find it to be occupied by Philippa Giorgio. She reveals to Pike and Burnham that she now works for Section 31, headed by Captain Leland, a former friend of Pike. Giorgio states that their mission is to capture Spock. Now, knowing her distaste for Vulcans, since they were enemies of the Terrans in the Mirror Universe, Burnham confronts Giorgio to let her know she won't tolerate any harm to her brother. Despite Pike's objections, Spo- Section 31 agent Ash Tyler is assigned to the bridge of the discovery to ensure the agency is fully informed if the ship is the first to locate Spock.
1: Okay, meanwhile, Tilly awakens in the mycelial network, terrified and angry about her abduction. There, she is attacked by the Jossup, until May tells them Tilly is not their enemy. Uh, May demands that Tilly kill a monster that is destroying her world. And when Tilly sees the discovery, has partially entered the mycelial network to rescue her, she agrees to help May and enters the ship to secure a weapon.
0: On the ship, Tilly has a joyful reunion with Burnham and Stamets before May once again turns her attention to the monster, which they can hear wailing inside the ship. They soon find the monster, and they discover it is actually a reconstituted version of the murdered Dr. Hugh Colbert. For nine months, he had tried to protect himself from attacks by covering himself with a tar-like substance that's lethal to the Joseph.
1: Time grows short as the discovery begins to slide deeper into the network, resulting in the ship being engulfed and, and close to killing the crew. Leland has been following Pike with the Section 31 ship cloaked as a nearby asteroid. Responding to an urgent request for assistance from Tyler, Leland drops the cloak and uses his tractor beams to hold the ship in place, but cannot do so for for long without incapacitating his own engines.
0: Tilly convinces May that Colbert is not her enemy. And Tilly also thinks of a way to get him to the discovery through the use of the cocoon May had used to transport Tilly to the mycelial network. The plan works. Discovery escapes the mycelial network in the time. Culber is reunited with Stamets, and Ash Tyler is now made a permanent Section 31 liaison to the Discovery. Now, Gary, you know, I think we both enjoyed this episode's writing and acting. However, we are the uh, we first must deal with the elephant in the room, and that is the way in which the character of Dr. Hugh Colbert rejoined the crew.
1: Yeah, so the title of this episode is Saints of Imperfection, and I think that's an apt name for the episode for a couple of reasons. The term is one that comes from... Um, Academy Award-winning filmmaker and monster lover, Guillermo del Toro. His lifelong fascination with horror and fantasy has led him to interpret the purposes of, of monsters in a unique way. He has been known as saying that monsters are living, breathing metaphors. Um, he sees monsters not necessarily as intrinsically evil or angels as good. He thinks that they could have the capacity to have both, both aspects the monster in the discovery episode is depicted by may as a terrifying being bent on destroying her people however the monster turns out to not have evil intentions but rather is actually a revived and traumatized dr huel cover Culver. when tilly refuses to kill him and incensed may tells her you refuse to see what is right in front of you but it is may actually who isn't allowing herself to acknowledge what is self-evident her vision is colored by exaggerated fear may lacks an understanding of who the monster truly is leading her to advocate for the wrong course of action as for uh, another observation of the title it describes how i feel about the the writers of this episode i mean they meant well and they had the best of intentions but i think they failed to achieve what i believe they were going for and that is they were trying to correct the mistake made in the first season following a very tired old trope of killing off um an lgbtq character as if a gay couple are are destined to suffer
0: yeah, I definitely agree. For me, the way Hugh was brought back took me out of the story the first time I saw the episode. Now, Don't get me wrong, I'm really a fan of the Stambits Colby romance, but I certainly didn't like the fact that the Doctor was killed off in season one. Yeah. To try to make sense of Hugh's resurrection, the script included a lot of scientific theory with a heaping spoonful of hocus-pocus the result was a bit unsatisfying. Yeah, I
1: mean to be honest with you, it it was extremely thin. And yes. I thought and and the connection of how Hugh actually got into the network and was able to be re reconstructed and right. just was a little flimsy for my taste. Did I'm not mad that he's back. I just I'm 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 disappointed in that they didn't think through that action a lot more right. before they presented it to us.
0: Well, before they even had them killed off in the first place. Well, they
1: well, it's I I get the impression that that wasn't necessarily planned. Right. Okay. So
0: for when I did a second viewing of the episode, uh-huh. I just decided to accept the return of Hugh, you you yeah. know and the way he was done and then I enjoyed it a lot more. After all, Star Trek Discovery is a science fiction show and in this episode the you know they ended up destroying the cocoon that made the resurrection possible so no other character will be coming back from the dead at least anytime soon. So, why don't we talk about what we really liked about the episode?
1: Well, that's pretty clear, okay? Despite our issues about Dr. Culper's return, we thought the script was really quite well written by Kristen Baer and directed wonderfully by uh, David Barrett. Baer is a staff writer on Discovery and is best known for the series of novels she's done focusing on Star Trek Voyager crew. Um, She is often noted for her depth Knowledge uh, of Star Trek canon and besides this episode she's also served as a head writer for episode 8 of last season which was Seavikpakum Parabellum I mean that's the episode where Saru is obsessed with remaining on the planet Pavo since being there allows him to experience life without a constant sense of fear for the very first time
0: yeah and Um, Talking about the director, David Barrett is really a well-known television director and producer, and he previously directed one of my favorite Discovery episodes of season one. That's the one, uh, Magic That Makes the Sanest Man Go Mad, the time loop episode featuring Harry Mudd. Saints of Imperfection followed a similar model to the Harry Mudd episode by beginning and ending with an interior monologue by Michael in which she touches on the themes explored uh, in Season 2, uh, themes like family, faith, life, death, love, and preordination. The monologue bookends an episode of verbal sparring matches between pairs and trios of characters, as well as exciting action sequences in which the Discovery crew try to give the away team enough time to rescue Tilly before losing the entire ship to the mycelial network.
1: Another observation we want to make is, yet again, calling out the character Pike. Um, I am continually impressed by Anson Mount's mostly faceted portrayal of the character. Um, basically, Pike quickly surmises that there is something different about Giorgio And he does it in a very clever way. He utilizes questioning her about their days at Starfleet to really elicit the kind of behavior that he was accustomed to seeing her present which is atypical to the way she's behaving since she walked off that, That's that right. shuttle craft. He uses the conversational trick of reliving experiences to highlight the changes in her behavior. And he also notes that Burnham, a former mentee of Giorgio, is the last crew member to lower her phaser when she disembarks from the shuttle.
0: So... I, I like this writing because, you know, it shows that Pike's not an idiot. I yeah. mean, these things are happening right. around him. And he's,
1: and, and he's he's aware. He's
0: aware, and right. he's
1: making people aware that he's aware.
0: Exactly. Also, um, there's this theme of the importance of trust. When Pike questions Burnham about Giorgio, she quips, oh, the war changed her. But... Pike makes it plain excuse me pike makes it plain that he doesn't accept that answer at all. He tells her call me provincial but I prefer people whose truth I can take at face value. So what truth are you keeping from me? So Pike's issue was not with George, you know, cuz he doesn't really have, you know, he doesn't have a pledge with her or he 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 hasn't made a solemn promise with her, but he expects more out of Burnham. He demands transparency from his bridge crew and lets her know he will not accept anything less. Burnham says she will provide detail when she has more time. And Pike responds, okay, done. Just don't let me chase after you for the information.
1: You know, it's interesting when you look at that because he he is a man who communicates his beliefs and and his values on a repeated basis oh
0: yeah he wears his values on his sleeve you know and
1: and, and, and we've seen him now say this is the second episode i think where he has made that mantra starfleet is a is a promise
0: that's right
1: i I, give my life for you and you give your life for me
0: and we keep our promise and we
1: keep our yes and he says that to remind them of their obligation to one another and i think that goes to the core of what he feels is not present in regards to um, revealing what burnham knows to him that's right that 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 obligation that they have to one another is not being met at the level that he expects it as the captain of this ship so trust is also an issue with other parents throughout the episode not just with them um You see with Burnham does not trust Giorgio and with good reason, and um, she fears that the Terran will harm her brother. It's, it's, it's Giorgio who reminds her that she helped to save the crew and has held, as she said, Michael's life in her hands a dozen times. I mean, Giorgio attempts to advise Michael um, to have a little faith which I think is an ironic use of it, considering where, how this, that word is being used as one of the major themes this mm-hmm. season that they're exploring. And you see it register on Michael's face mm-hmm. after, after the hologram communication is discontinued. Mm-hmm. She registers that. In fact, her, her, her monologue that we hear for the remainder of the episode mm-hmm. does go back to that idea of faith that she wishes she had the ability to just merely believe in a higher power and give up and give up the um, responsibility of, of putting the burden on herself.
0: And I think the issue here is there's a difference between faith and trust. Yes. Because.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, huge.
0: Because, um, she George O. Because you know, and we're going to talk about this a little later. You know, Michael is a vulnerability for her.
1: Absolutely. And Michael is a vulnerability for Giorgio, whether she realizes or not. Right. She is. So,
0: so Giorgio may think, and you know, in her mind, I'm doing what's best for you.
1: Right. Right.
0: But that's not the same as trusting that she's going to do what you know what Michael wants her to do. Right.
1: Right. And in that same scene, they also bring up again going back to the concept of tr- trust. Um, the the Aesop's fable that has been brought up repeatedly in Star Trek about the scorpion and the frog. Right. That has been used repeatedly in several episodes right. where you find that you're talking about somebody putting themselves in a precarious situation to provide aid and then actually finding out that, no, you're the the... The scorpion can't change his behavior. Right, can't and actually, change his nature. And, and has mm-hmm. to actually sting the frog, Right. making sure both of them die in the process of drowning.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: because it is who he it is. It is
0: who that scorpion is. In fact, right. there's
1: a Voyager two part episode called Scorpion that basically deals with that very same concept. All right.
0: Um, talking about another pairing where this is important. Uh, when an egg abducted, Tilly initially awakens in the mycelial network, she does not trust May, and seems willing to indulge in an exercise in futility to alone search for her way back to the discovery." I mean, obviously she's really, really upset, and again, uh, Mary Wiseman does a great job in depicting that. Ironically, not too much time passes before Tilly too, seems to too easily accept May's request to execute the monster that is killing Arthur Giuseppe without knowing whether the killing would be justified.
1: You know, and although they've known each other for quite some time, going back even to their Academy days, Leland and Pike don't trust each other, and that's very evident at the oh, end, yeah. of, end of the last... Uh, even though Leland has just helped save uh, Discovery from falling into the mycelial well, network. He,
0: he helps them after, of course, of course, Tyler is the one who um, asks for the help. Right, right. right,
1: because he's following them cloaked as an asteroid, a nearby asteroid. That's right. And th- that's not a very... Uh, Trustworthy act. That's right. Uh, Pike, but Pike acknowledges that Leland is, has always been more comfortable working in the gray areas. While Leland notes that it's an understatement that Pike's path of conduct is clearer than his own.
0: Oh, definitely. So, so talking about also Pike and Tyler, who we just mentioned. Pike has absolutely no use for Tyler, none whatsoever, and Pike you know, like, lets you know why. He says, look, he's killed a Starfleet officer while he was under the influence of Vak. He voluntarily went to Konos to serve as the torchbearer for the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. And he's now working for you know, Section 31, which is, of course, the Black Ops organization. So, you know, when Tyler comes on that ship, he, uh, uh, Pike immediately has Nan, you know, the new chief of security, to keep an eye on Tyler while he's in the mess hall.
1: And Tyler's actions are the catalyst for the only time thus far that we've witnessed Pike losing his cool. That's right. You know when the ship is in danger of being lost into the my sailing on network, Tyler uses his badge as a communicator, something that we don't see actually later on on, on Star Trek until next generation that's right and 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 Pike calls out, well, where did you get that com- kind of that's communicator? right um, he call uses the communicator to call for Leland's assistance, and when Tyler attempts. To ask Leland not to sacrifice discovery to save them, the Section 31 agent uh, Pike snaps at Tyler, saying, On my bridge, you speak only when addressed. Even after the rescue crew returns from their mission and Tyler wants to see if Michael is okay, Pike orders him to stay on the bridge, according to, as he says, liaison protocol. <laughs> It's very clear he has no use for Tyler. No too. use. And it will be interesting to see uh, what will it take for Pike's attitude to change towards Tyler or if it's even possible that he can do so.
0: Right, right. So it will be quite interesting. Um, I think we should also spend a little time talking about Section 31 and Admiral Katrina Cornwell who comes out of nowhere, you know, uh, at the end of the episode. So... Um, This depiction of Section 31 appears to be far more uh, a public conception of the agency, almost like a 23rd century version of the CIA, rather than the clandestine black ops group that has been depicted uh, in both uh, uh, Deep Space Nine and also Enterprise.
1: Yeah, and and to be clear, what we're talking about here is in those two series, the the Section 31 that exists is not commonly known by other members of Starfleet. It is a super secret.
0: Super secret, yeah. Yeah. Very very few people actually know that it exists. And in
1: both cases, both in Deep Space Nine and in Enterprise, the member of the crew that is approached doesn't initially tell their captain. Right. You know, Bashir doesn't come uh, immediately come to Cisco with that information and Malcolm is in act- enterprise on in enterprise, enterprise is actually ordered not to t- go to Archer and inform him of this so you have somebody who who is supposed to be part of your crew your cohesive team that's right and they are also they are working under different orders.
0: Right, right, right. Or different uh, different authorities.
1: Different authorities and an authority that you don't know where the 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 chain of command actually exists. That's
0: right. That's right. That, or or what their motives are. Right.
1: And that is completely different to what we have here in this show. And I think that that part of the reason I mean I know some people are going to be upset at that, but I think it makes sense if you look at the state of the Federation and specifically Starfleet Mm -hmm. following this massive uh, Klingon war. That's right. You know, also in one of the last scenes of the episode takes us to section 31 when we see Pike beam over to the ship, Mm -hmm. assuming to actually have a confrontation with Leland. And before he can say anything, Admiral Katrina Cornwall pops out. That's right. Um, We have no idea when Cornwall came on board and, but her purpose she claims is is to make sure that Leland and Pike know that they must put their differences aside in the work together to find Spock in fact she gives them information about that they found out that they that they both need to use um, who who may be the only person in the Federation who has any sort of connection to the several southern red signals who we know is Spock and
0: there's another observation to note that concerns Cornwell herself. The line Burnham earlier stated concerning Georgiou that the war changed her actually more aptly fits the admiral. That's true. Starfleet endured massive losses during the Klingon War and the Federation faced the real possibility of annihilation. Cornwell and other Federation commanders were so desperate they were willing to forego their principles and conspire with Mirror Giorgio to commit genocide against the Klingons.
1: And I think it's also one thing that I want to point out. Pike again goes back over goes over to the section 31 ship to confront Leland. He has no idea he's going to also meet At McCorwall. She, she claims she comes there to give them this information. So why didn't she come to the discovery? Right. Why is she on the Section One Thirty-One ship?
0: Right, right, right.
1: That that right there is a is concerning to me in regards to exactly where she fits. And
0: she's also there in person. You know, she's also there in person. So you wonder again: is she staying on that ship? You know, what's well, what
1: we don't know exactly what the thing is, but we know that she is she is physically there she's not a holograph, or she's not That's on the right. screen and that tells it that tells it tells a very different um context to what that 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 scene means also when we think back to the war cornwell who was a former psychologist seems to have taken a far more militaristic tone and bearing in how she presents herself That's right. mean, and we've seen this pretty much since the end of season 1 where where she and spock Confront the Discovery after they get back into the prime, prime Universe. And they first have to prove themselves. You mean Sarek. Sarek, right. right. Sarek. Uh, they first have to prove themselves as who they are before they'll even um, take uh, bring their guns down. That's right. Um, instead of talking about exploration and getting to know new species, she's up there talking about nation building.
0: Yes, yes, that was which a Which she
1: declares to Pike is a never pretty. You know, that's the unappetizing truth and you know it.
0: But but Pike, to his credit, he kinda looks at her like Right. Yeah, yeah right. like really? Right. You know And when you think
1: it's, about it, when you think about it, that move that Giorgio did to assist Laurel in Point of Light, that is a that is a portion of, of nation building. It's very similar to some of the things that we did, the manipulating you know, South American nations, uh, some African nations trying to push them or find leaders that would be more comfortable to, to America. That's right. You know, and, and that so that's a very obvious, putting them in a situation where they'd be obliged, they owe us something. That's right. Right. Um, one wonders if this is someone who, like the Terrans of the Mirror Universe, Primary motivation is for is for her actions is fear, you know her mission. Now seems to be to assume an offensive posture and eliminate sources of vulnerability that the the Starfleet and the Federation might have.
0: Yeah, so it 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 really is gonna be uh, something to see whether they continue to develop her character in that way. Um, are we you know are we definitely gonna see m- much more of Admiral Cornwell? you know so um so I would like okay, to think so yeah, I would like to think so too so um so this episode really um uh, brought up questions, so like a good any good episode, the narrative should elicit questions to engage the viewer to move the story forward for us, some of the most intriguing questions raised by saints of imperfection included. So, Tilly promises May they will one day be able to meet again. However, with the destruction of the cocoon on the Discovery, such a reunion seems like it would be impossible. What could be the circumstance uh, of the two characters meeting again? Will it have something to do with the continued use of the spore drive, which we know will not survive, at least by the time of the original series?
1: Now, here, here's a question I think is going to play out. We're going to be able to see how this one is going to go. Yeah. How comfortably are Culber, Stamets, and Tyler going to coexist on the same ship? hmm. Will Pike ever accept Tyler as part of his team?
0: All right. Another question is, having a pro-Federation leader of the Klingons will only be sustainable for less than 10 years. Because by the, Yeah, because <laughs> by the time of the original series, the Klingons be, are, are enemies again. Will the return to enemy status occur during the discovery time period? If so, how will it affect Tyler and Laurel and also Michael?
1: Also as previously noted, this is a S- section 31 following the near devastation of the Starf- of Starfleet by the Klingons. It might have become a more visible agency out of necessity rather than desire. Um, does that lead us to a more ethical space spy agency or a more mi- morally compromised Starfleet? I <laughs> know that's right because that's really the two options
0: yeah. Also, Admiral Cornwell reported to Pike and Leland that subspace scanning of the red bursts uncovered traces of tachyon radiation, to which Leland concluded it could be interpreted as evidence of time travel. But in contrast, Pike surmised it could be a sign of the presence of cloaking technology or transporters. Which one is it? Or, as according to Cornwell, Is there another explanation?
1: So how effective is this working relationship between Pike and Leland actually going to be? Will Pike's allegiance to Spock get in his way of their agreement to be more transparent with information and strategy in the search for the Vulcan? Or is Leland's willing to to get his job done at all costs Going to in some way, shape, or form compromise their relationship. All right.
0: We also know that Admiral Cornwell's authority over Section 31 places her in an odd position for a Starfleet senior officer. Right. So, what does that say about how her character has evolved since last season?
1: Yeah, again, we do not, we've never before seen the chain of command in. Uh, a Section Thirty One episode in right. other series, so we don't know who to whom they report. Right. Naturally, that's right. So this is an interesting development in this story. Um, and finally, what are Georgiou's true motivations? How does Spock fit into them? And uh, is it wise for Michael not to trust her? I mean, she's done some things to that you would initially think would build trust within you and the other people. But you still know who she is. Right. <laughs> right. Will Michael continue to serve as a vulnerability for Giorgio going forward?
0: That's right. So now we're going to turn to a little bit of Star Trek news. Uh, and this concerns the Ready Room. Uh, this week's Facebook Live interview featured Wilson Cruz who of course plays Dr. Hugh Colbert. Within the 22 minute interview, he seemed to confirm suspicions that being brought back to life on the show was a response to backlash from fans upset with the character's death. Cruz claimed he didn't even know he would be a regular cast member again until he received the script for Saints of Imperfection. In addition, Wilson stated Colbert's nine months of trying to survive in the mycelial network will have a profound effect on his character in future episodes. We look forward to see how that's going to manifest
1: itself. Okay, so next up, episode six of season two, The Sounds of Thunder. In the next episode... We focus on Saru as he attempts to address the continued subjugation and exploitation of his people, the Kelpians, by the Boal.
0: Right. So that, from the trailer, it really looked exciting. Right.
1: And what the trailer also showed us is that those inky figures that we had seen in the trailers for the season two, they actually turn out to be, those must be the Boal, because that's the species they're actually going against.
0: So we have a special announcement for our listeners, and that is that you won't have to wait long for our next podcast. Within the next 48 hours, we hope to post a special installment reviewing the first five episodes of Season 2. Now, as most of you know, these episodes were the last in which Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts served as the Discovery showrunners and thus represented a particular vision for season two. So on this special podcast, we will review common episode themes as well as examine what we believe to have been intentional changes to the show in response to fan criticisms regarding perceived canon violations.
1: We also think that that at this point, in production, when they stopped after these five episodes due to the changes in leadership, they also went back to the writer's room and made some changes to the remainder nine episodes from where they had originally planned to go. So I think this makes a perfect spot for us to stop and look at what the first five episodes of this season mean and then obviously start speculating on what... Changes are going to occur going forward. But until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD on Facebook at facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD. You can go to our website, Star where we offer additional articles on Star Trek Canons, interesting side buyer issues, and aspects of the show. Also, email us at startrekaod at gmail.com. Until then.
0: Live long and prosper.